What's up, Red Letter Disciples? We're back with another episode. Can't wait to get to it. We're going to be bringing co-host, friend, Pastor Chris Johnson back into the studio in just a minute and welcoming today an awesome guest. Jamar Tisby is joining us. He is a historian, author, podcaster, racial justice advocate who helps others become lifelong advocates for racial justice. A really important conversation today. We get at what's underneath all of this, like the cause of racism. And also, we don't want to just talk about problems. We want to give solutions. So what would it look like for each of us to be a part of pursuing racial justice? So grateful for Jamar and his work. But before we get there, thanks go up to our sponsor today, which is Red Letter Living. We create resources that are going to help people become greater disciples of Jesus. This podcast, that's one of those resources. But you know what it all started with? started with a 40-day challenge called Red Letter Challenge. And now we've got four different 40-day challenges. You might be saying, what is a 40-day challenge? It's a 40-day experience tailor-made for your church. And so we've got everything you need. We've got books that are going to last 40 days for the individuals. We've got small group materials. We've got kids curriculum. We've got sermons for the pastors. We got it all. Churches that have used our 40-day challenges have actually grown their small groups by more than 40%, all the while bringing unity in a really divided time because it turns out when you focus on the life, words, and habits of Jesus, that brings a lot of unity. Plus, not going to lie, pastors and church leaders, staffs love the fact that this is a turnkey resource. So for six weeks at least, you, you know the grind, but for six weeks at least, you don't have to creatively start anything from scratch. So if you've never done one, we, we encourage you to start with our best-selling Red Letter Challenge, which will teach your people how to follow Jesus, hearing and doing his words. You can check it out at redletterchallenge.com slash join. You'll see the other 40-day challenges there too. And the best news, now is like a great time to lock in for a 40-day challenge to start 2024 with. What a, no, no better way to start the next year at your church committing to this is the year where we're going to really become great disciples. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to get back to the original disciple maker. And pastors, we've even got a free copy of a 40-day challenge for you if you'd like. Email our team at hello at redletterchallenge.com. We'll get you hooked up. And to find more, again, about those books and 40-day challenges and all the things that come with them, go to redletterchallenge.com slash join. All right, in just a minute, it's Jamar. But if you haven't yet, why haven't you? Would you hit that little plus sign on whatever platform that's going to be subscribe and follow? That means every episode is going to get to you. And it would mean the world if you take a few seconds and tap five-star rating for us. And if you want to write a review, we'd love to hear that. We'd love to hear how God is using this podcast to help challenge people in their faith. With all that said, episode 50, Jamar Tisby, let's do this. Folks, on the Red Letter Disciple, we're having a really important conversation today. I'm pretty pumped. We're bringing Jamar Tisby onto the show today, a historian, mm. author, speaker, podcaster. There's so many titles yeah. after his name. Jamar is a racial justice advocate that helps other people become lifelong advocates for racial justice. He's the author of the wildly influential The Color of Compromise awesome book, How to Fight Racism, and he leads the podcast, Pass the Mic. Love the work that he's doing, and he's going to help all of us today in our pursuit to be the greatest disciples of Jesus that we can be. Jamar, what's up, man? Welcome to the Red Letter Disciple. How you doing today? 
I am excited to be on this show. It feels like y'all are sportscasters <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, you're broadcasting yeah. live from the sidelines here uh-huh. and uh, we're, we're in the game. We're in the game. We so, throw it over to you, Cam. So if no. you keep that analogy, Jamar, here, here's how to think of yes. it. I'm like the play-by-play guy. Yes. I'm trying to take this from one, you know, 10-yard line all the way into the end zone. He's the the color commentator. I'm color talking commentary. About, I'm talking about what just happened in the locker room, throwing him off. It, it I would have guessed that for, for each of your roles somehow. Yeah. There you go. And yeah. it doesn't always go that way. No. Sometimes it feels like I'm offense and he's defense. Yeah. But anyway, hopefully I'm not the player with the same answer for every question. You know, it was a team effort. You know, uh, we just tried right. to work really hard out there. Uh, yeah. Just glad for a good result. <laughs> Folks on the next whoa, whoa, whoa. Who was the dude? Remember the dude that hated um, going to post game conferences and he goes, I'm just here so I won't get fined. Remember oh, that? yeah. <laughs> Marshawn Lynch. Lynch. Yeah. There it is. I'm just yeah. here so I won't get fined. What do you think of the name today? I'm just here so I won't get fined. I love it. Well, hopefully we'll get a little bit different answers than that with Jamar. But hey, man, seriously, thanks for your continued work and dedication to help others become lifelong advocates for racial justice. So we're going to talk about how each of us can do that a little bit later. But I'd love to back up and just hear a little bit of your story come into faith. Uh, I know enough about your background uh, with what I saw online. It looks like you attended, even though you attended a Catholic faith, uh, school that faith wasn't really a big part of your childhood. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I went to Catholic schools grades K through eight. Mm. And um, the good part about it was in that context, faith, faith was familiar. Yeah. Uh, so we had religion class every year. We went to mass every week. Uh, there were, you know, statues and crucifixes all around the school. So God talk was familiar to me, but faith wasn't yet personal to mm-hmm. me in that context. So uh, my parents and my family, we weren't actively practicing any religion. There was no hostility there. It just wasn't a priority in our in our home life. Mm-hmm. That all started to change in high school. Um, I met a, a classmate of mine. His nickname was Toph. We had a PE class, health class in high school at this ungodly hour it was like 7 50 a.m or something Who that is that? that is not good no, no, <laughs> for on, any man. human being let alone right. high schoolers exactly. um but you know it, it, it's strange what sticks out to you in in those situations what what really struck me was this guy he never cussed <laughs> he never used curse words which was like every three words for for a lot of my high school friends and so that stuck out came to find out that was part of his sort of commitment as a christian to holiness and the disciplines and whatnot so long story short he invited me to uh, a youth group and i started going there was food there was games there were sports there were girls you know what else do you need as a high school guy (laughs) Um, (laughs) but there were also these these like mini sermons that the the youth pastor would give and they made a lot of sense so um in not too long a time uh i had the classic evangelical conversion story prayed the sinner's prayer and poof i was a christian (laughs) (laughs) hey jamar i got a quick question for you um so my one of my good friends in fact he's uh 
the godparent to my two kids. He went uh, in New Jersey. He went to Catholic school K through 12. He's got all these nightmare stories about like when he would, um, you know, he would say something crazy and the nun would come over and smack his hands with a ruler. Like, <laughs> do you have any crazy like uh, Catholic school stories at all? <laughs> well, they were very strict. They never busted the rulers out on okay, us. Um, okay. But we did have nuns. Uh, I had probably a, a sister as a teacher every year, K through eight. Um, it was very old school, very strict, very stern in a lot of senses but there's like different kinds of catholic schools so this was um sort of a mission kind of school almost mm -hmm. like it was in a very blue collar working class area um most of my class mates were uh latino and latina um it was it was an interesting mix the the reason why i went there was because our next door neighbor was the principal and uh my mom my parents knew them and it was like okay they're they're solid folks so you can go to their school so that's <laughs> that was the level of thought that went into keep it. Close, keep a close eye on you then. oh look i couldn't get away with a darn thing i promise you there was one instance in um so i was the quietest kid and never got any trouble I wasn't a teacher's pet because I didn't talk enough. So, mm -hmm. but I was just like never a problem, right? But then there was one day in eighth grade uh, where some other folks around mm -hmm. me watched uh, the company you say, came, man. <laughs> was these other folks around me. They were like throwing paper and uh, I might've thrown a piece or two, but then they rounded us all up. There were probably four or five of us and they took us uh the 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 vice principal um brought us in her office one at a time so we couldn't coordinate stories or anything like that <laughs> i just remember because this is my first time ever ever getting called into a principal's office in that kind of situation and so i was trembling so bad that she actually felt bad she's like listen <laughs> you're not in any trouble uh just you know watch it around these guys and you're fine but she 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 she, she took pity on me because she saw the fear in my eyes <laughs> just just getting in the she office she showed you some big time grace in that moment. big time grace and mercy we're learning so much yeah, good stuff man, here early good. so if you're in trouble just act like you're afraid just respect uh, them like Yes. What else have I learned? If you're a Christian out there and want to make an influence, just stop cussing so much. It actually makes a difference. It and is. then, of course, high school, yeah, youth groups. It is games, funny, though. Girl, all that but, stuff. Still so, good. like, I, I teach, I'm a pastor, but I also teach at a, a Christian middle school, high school, right? And, okay. <laughs> and so um, I teach theology for juniors and seniors, but I'll go downstairs sometimes and it's like, the middle school kids that finally learn like their first cuss word and they say it, <laughs> they, they, start, they start handing it out. Like, it, you know, yes. like mints. I'm like, boys, chill out. You know, <laughs> this is Christmas school. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Like, oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to fast forward and I'm sure we'll, we'll do some reverse engineering because now today you, you help others understand more how racism impacts our world and how we can fight against it. But wh what was it in, in your story that helped you see, you know what, this is not only a problem, but mm. it's a problem that I'm going to give like my life towards this cause. Was there something mm. specific that like really ramped that up in you? Yeah. So, I mean, first understand that as a 
black person in particular, person of color in general, there's always this undercurrent wherever you are, wherever you're going. So, so going back to those, you know, middle school, junior high days, when we went to mass, what stuck out to me was everybody else would go up for the Eucharist except the black kids. Hmm. And at that time, in my level of understanding of theology and religion, I was like, well, it must be because we're black. <laughs> it turns out, oh, man. Oh, man. it turns out uh, everybody else was Catholic, but all the black kids were Baptists. <laughs> so they didn't go up uh, at mass. It was just this <laughs> baptism. I how you could think that, though. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, there was always this kind of connection between race and religion. Then in that high school youth group, it came up in ways. What was interesting, like, it's, it's subtle, right? Like, there's nobody out there saying, well, we're not going to play with you because your skin is brown. That's not how it shows up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more like, oh, um, I like this person, but they're really not going to be interested in me because daddy doesn't want them bringing home someone who looks like me. Um, Or like in preaching and sermons and whatnot, the applications, the examples, the references, all way out of my cultural context and nothing that I was familiar with, even not growing up as a Christian, there were still things that I was familiar with in Christianity. None of that was ever on the radar. But in terms of like my my public work around this, that really started in seminary. Um, Funny enough, I was such a cool high school kid that all the way back, like junior year, I knew I was going to go to seminary. There you go. Every high schooler's ambition, right? (laughs) There's NFL or or the NBA, and there's seminary, right? Well, you were you were looking for the big money, you know? That's the thing, (laughs) exactly. Looking for the money, the fame. (laughs) <laughs> the respect, all of it. Um, so <laughs> I end up in seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. What's interesting about Jackson is it has the highest, the second highest proportion of black people of any city over 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's 80 percent black. That was then. It's probably even higher now. And when I went to seminary, you could count on one hand the number of black American students enrolled at the seminary. Oh, even in Jackson? Huh. Wow. Even in Jackson. Yeah. Wow. Um, it wasn't always like that. It ebbed and flowed. But when I was there, it was definitely an ebb. And I was like, huh, something's going on here. So I started something called the African-American Leadership Initiative that was through the admissions office. It was designed yeah. to recruit more black students to the seminary and equip students of any race for cross-cultural ministry. So that was sort of my beginning foray into any sort of public work on racial justice, which I would have called called probably racial reconciliation at that point. Um, But then you get a little bit of the blowback, a little bit of the pushback. So I remember hearing from another student what other students were saying about me and this initiative. So they were saying, you know, this is not the gospel. It's it's divisive. It's making race too big of an issue. We should just not talk about it. I started to hear all these things that um, people say when, when you do racial justice work. But what was so hurtful was these were guys I sat next to in class. We probably played basketball together, ultimate frisbee together. We may have prayed together, been in a group together for a class. And they didn't say it to my face. I was like, Mm -hmm. Oh, Okay, this is interesting. So, um, why do you yeah, think that, that, was? that was? Why do you think that was? Why do you think that the they started the groundswell, perhaps amongst each other, but they didn't come to you, who was a friend at that point. 
Um, I can only speculate. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Seems kind of um, uh, a, a bit of timidity there. You don't want to say it straight to someone's face. It's almost like, uh, you know, Drake says, uh, trigger fingers turn to Twitter fingers. Um, <laughs> social social media now is is a similar way where you can hide behind an avatar. You can type or say whatever you want online. But if you ever get in a personal interaction with that person, you would never say such things. So Great. I think it was um, they they wanted to say what they wanted to say, but they weren't bold enough to say it to my face. I don't know if they were afraid of getting in an argument or being called a racist or whatever. But yeah. <laughs> okay. OK, fair enough. Yeah. Good and so you f- keep going. You mentioned in 2014 uh, was the first year, though, that you truly like studied the history mm-hmm. of race in our country. And so when I, when we look at, and I mentioned the bio, you do have a lot of a lot of words after Jamar Tisby, but that first word yeah. historian, which I think is interesting. It's, it's interesting what people who have a lot of titles choose as their first word, that <laughs> historian. And and so I, I wanted, yeah, to look into that because if, if I could just speak for myself right now, it was probably around that year as well for me. That, you know, obviously you hear things going on in the nation, in the country, and of course I know it's a problem, and I hate that it's a problem, and I hate racism, and of course it's awful, but like I just had this incredibly shallow understanding, and 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 still it's probably too shallow for what it ought to be, but I have found that every time I've tried to sink into deeper waters, it helps me to see a little bit more clearly, and so I'd love to know for you, when you especially looked into the history of race, like what, what were some discoveries that then helped you gain a deeper understanding of probably what you had felt and experienced to some degree, but maybe had never really researched? So what's interesting is, um, yeah, you mentioned 2014. That was with the killing of Mike Brown in August of that year. And like a lot of other people at the time, I was I was searching for answers. I was trying to wrap my head around what had happened. And then these protests that were happening now under the banner of the Black Lives Matter movement. And then as the months progressed, lots of different um, but similar incidents of unarmed black people being killed by law enforcement on camera. And what I found in that time was that historians often had the most helpful things to say. Um, So this is when I started learning about redlining and restrictive covenants and how a community like Ferguson comes to be because they shuffled black people into the same neighborhood so that white people could reserve, you know, the more um, uh, economically prosperous areas for themselves. I also learned about the origins of law enforcement, how prior to the Civil War, most towns did not have a standing police force. But after the Civil War, and namely after emancipation, that's when you start getting line item in budgets to have a standing police force. And why was that? It's because now you have all of these free black people running around and they still needed in the minds of many white people to be controlled. And the police force, um, this is not the sum total of how law enforcement came to be, but it's part of it. And the root in many cases determines the fruit, which is what gripped me about history is that so much of what we're seeing today is the fruit of seeds planted long ago. But if I don't know the seed and how it was planted and who it was planted and the soil it grew in and all of that, then I'm not going to understand the fruit whether that's good, whether it's bad, um, or how we got here. So that started me on this journey. Um, I took my first 
a graduate course in history at Jackson State University, a historically black school. It remains to this day the only class ever in the history of my education where I've done all the reading beforehand. Nice. Um, I was just gripped by by what I was learning and couldn't get enough. So, hmm. yeah, that's what started me on that journey. I think that's so good because I, I, what did you say? The root is the fruit. <laughs> is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the root determines the fruit. Root determines the fruit. And I think, yeah, when, the, when there's these current events and these new things that are popping up all the time, you know, we're all so quick to, to react or to say, or to or respond. And, 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 and we oftentimes don't do the deeper work to look back and see how did we get to where we are. And I think that's what you do such a good job of, uh, for the first work that I ran into of yours was uh, the book, The Color of Compromise. And I, I want to talk about that because I think that there's this, um, yeah, and again, I don't want to pit everybody, everybody's on their own journey, they need to figure out where they are. But I do hear a lot in the church and the Christian space of, you know, they're against racism, obviously, uh, but they don't always uh, understand uh, some of the past decisions and uh, things that have happened inside the church and with leaders at the church that have helped, uh, I would say, shape to where we get to where we are today. And so that's what your book, The Color of Compromise, does such a good good job. So so back up and tell me, why did you write that, The Color of Compromise? Uh, because misery loves company. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you haven't gotten any flack for it. So. <laughs> well, it was it was um, it. it 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 came about originally when I was in grad school for my PhD in history. The first two years of a history program is is what they call coursework. So you're you're going to classes, but you're reading just in almost incomprehensible amounts of books, yeah. right? Mm. And um as I read, I was learning more and more of all kinds of history, labor history, gender history, you know, military history, all of that. But also race is a big part of the story, no matter what you're studying. And so as I was learning, uh, I just kept getting more and more upset. I think it was a righteous anger. Um, what that evolved into was I, I, I had all this, you know, it's, not, it's like when you learn something new, that's exciting to you. The first thing you want to do is tell someone else. Um, yes. Yeah. And so that's how I, I was just like bursting to to share this because I thought it was just remarkable. Um, and the first time it showed up was in a talk I gave in 2017, I believe. And um, it went well. So I'm like, maybe there's something more here that we can tease out. Um, wrote a book proposal, and then ended up with a project called The Color of Compromise, which was really a summation and a building on what I was learning as a uh, graduate student in history about the, the racial history of our country. It's good. And, and, and in the book, and, and I know you talk about like many leaders talk about the importance of reconciliation. I heard you earlier in this even say I've moved away from not necessarily talking and using those words, but focus on racial justice. But, right. but you say we can't have reconciliation without repentance and we can't have repentance without truth. And I think there's a lot of leaders, Christian leaders that I know that want to jump right to reconciliation, but without the deeper work of truth and repentance first, like it's a futile attempt. And I think that's what your book, Color of Compromise, does so well, is historically documenting time after time, circumstance after circumstance, decision after decision, again, of how churches and its leaders have been 
complicit when it comes to racism. So give a few examples uh, of that just for maybe those who haven't read the book or those that think, oh, it's it's a problem and the church has always been getting it right. Like, ah, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. So just a real quick word on that quote that uh, you you cited. Um, like if you ever have like the Kindle version or the ebook version and, and you have the, you know, popular highlights uh, tab <laughs> yeah. turned on, that's one that'll come up. And what's funny about that one is that's the one that a provost at Taylor University used as an excuse uh, when they were dismissing one of their professors. Mm. Um, so this is Professor Julie Moore. She used to work at Taylor University. Um, she was in charge of a center and also did some teaching. So uh, she didn't have, she wasn't in the tenure track, but she had a parallel process where her, she would put together a portfolio, peers at the school would review it and she would get renewed for like seven years. She had gone through all of that and gotten approved by her colleagues. But then one day the provost calls her into his office and she knew this wasn't good so she's like what what is going on here turns out he said you know we're not we're not going to renew your contract this will be your last semester hmm. and she's just flabbergasted obviously she's been at the school for years there's been no complaints um uh and then she asked well why why is that and the provost who really didn't do his homework he he, he read like the first page or two of her syllabus and he's like well the problem here is jamar tisby hmm. and the problem that he was citing was the quote that you just quoted. Yeah. So she had put that quote like on the first page of her syllabus to sort of explain what the class was about. It was a literature composition class with a focus on racial justice, huh. which is a very common practice. If you have a lit comp class, you have some theme around which you, you're going to be yeah. writing all semester. So this was racial. She had done it before. All that stuff wasn't a problem. But now with all this woke hysteria, critical race hysteria, it had suddenly become a problem. And the funny part is she didn't even assign my book in her syllabus. All she did was quote that quote mm. on the first page. And that was what the provost used as his backing or his excuse for her dismissal. How did you find so, out about that? Like, how, did, uh, how does that yeah, yeah. Um, so th this wasn't the first professor where something like that had happened. So Professor Sam Jockel down at uh, Palm Beach Atlantic University, which is uh -huh. steps away from Trump's Mar-a-Lago, uh -huh. um, he had been uh, uh, put under scrutiny and then went public by coming to me with his story and then was dismissed for going public with his story. But the same scenario where he had, and he had been at the school for 20 years. And then he essentially, uh, one day he walks out of class and his Dean and the provost are there and said, we need to talk to you. And, uh, he had one unit, wasn't even a whole course. It was a unit on racial justice that one parent had complained about, Oh, it's indoctrination. And, uh, that was enough to like get him under this review. And professor Sam to his credit was like, no, 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 this is not going to be done in the dark. So he knew my work and he contacted me and I wrote a story on my Substack, and, uh, that story played out. And Professor Julie Moore, this other professor at Taylor University who quoted me, she saw that and said, well, Jamar might be a good person to amplify my story, which I did. And it actually became, I think, the most read article on my Substack was about her trial and struggle uh, at this university that what was now happening with her then. 
she got fired um and uh they she sued uh for wrongful you know firing or whatever it is termination yes and um from what i understand there was some sort of uh settlement and part of it is she can't talk about it anymore but before that she 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 let them know what was going on (laughs) i was gonna say she'd be a great guest and and i want and i want to hear a few examples from that book still uh, so keep that i still want that answer but i want to pause for a second and just it, it stinks though when people use your words as weapons in a negative fashion that they were never intended to be used. Exactly. I'm like, why the fear, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> uh, to dive into history uh, from these universities, and it's not just at the university level, but why the fear to dive into history? Because we'll know the truth. <laughs> this is fantastic. I'm, I'm so glad we're talking about this because it's still, it's it just comes up like all the time. Mm-hmm. So with these Colleges and universities, it is a race to the right. It is posturing to demonstrate to the powers that be how not liberal, how not left, how not woke or whatever term you want to use they are. And, and, And I use that language because it's not about like truly being theologically faithful. It's not about being conservative in whatever sense that you mean that. It's about a public demonstration of how not like these quote unquote bad people you are, right? So so that was part of it. Um and it's of course a a fear of the donor class mm-hmm. where um they don't want to lose funding by appearing woke, which mm-hmm. is a a true threat to um, these colleges and universities. And on the flip side, not only do they not want to lose money, they've discovered this is a way to get more money. So, um, you know, so I've mentioned Palm Beach Atlantic, I've mentioned Taylor University, but before that there was Grove City College and Grove City College is in Western Pennsylvania, ultra conservative Christian school. What they've done, along with other colleges like Hillsdale College in Michigan, is to to stake their financial future and their institutional longevity on identifying as as far right as can be as a fundraising strategy and a recruiting strategy. So this has now become their identity that will get them more money. So not only will they not lose money, they'll get more money perhaps because of it. So so at the institutional level, that's what's happening. But on the ideological level, there's some other stuff happening. So there are individuals who are demonizing history writ large. We can think of, you know, uh, sorry, but, you know, Florida man governor uh, and his war against advanced placement African-American studies, um, where I used to live in the Delta region of Arkansas, in the state of Arkansas, they are following suit. And here, get this, the latest is... Um, Arkansas's governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who, of course, was Trump's um, press secretary for two years under her uh, administration, the Department of Ed is requiring now. First of all, they 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 essentially defunded AP African-American studies. Every other AP course, the state pays for the hundred dollar well, it's ninety dollar uh, test at the end of the year. They won't do that for African-American studies. They also won't count it as credit toward graduation, which every other AP uh, course does count. Um, so not only did they do that, the latest is they are requiring teachers who teach AP African-American studies to submit their lesson plans to the state 
to make sure it's not in violation of this executive order that Huckabee Sanders did within her first days in office. So that's where we are. Yeah. And the, this demonizing of history is widespread. Books like The Color of Compromise get lumped in there. And it's a fear, I think, of um, the knowledge and, and what this knowledge requires us to do in terms of responsibility and change. That's good. Yeah, I think that that's that's it, right? It's the fear of if I know this, then something will have to change. <laughs> and I don't know that I want something to be changed. And and even uh, you mentioned the university level, like even my alma mater, which we have a mutual friend, John Graff, that I went there, uh, they, they've been in the news on this sort of thing. And, and, and it's difficult to like, ah, navigate these waters. And so, but I, I can understand it from a, from a person, you know, that from an education institution, like that's education, but where I, as a pastor, as a Christian, as a church, like that's what I think your your book focuses on is really all the things that happen in the church even. And so I get that there's sin, there's brokenness everywhere, and I hate it, <laughs> but that's going to stay there. But like if we just focus on people that call themselves Christians, we've got a pretty shady history too. So I'm going to enter back into my question through yes, that. Yes, yes, so, yes. Yeah, give Thank us a you. Few of those. Yeah. Um, I'll just never forget. We we went to vacation um, in Virginia several years back. And, uh, you know, history geek that I am, of course, we had to stop at Williamsburg, um, historic colonial Williamsburg. And there's a museum there uh, not far from where um, the 20 and odd Negroes were brought to shore in 1619. Um and I never remember it stopped me and I'll never forget because it stopped me in my track. I was reading this placard that said in 1667, the Virginia Assembly passed a law that said baptism would not emancipate a person of indigenous descent, mixed race or African descent. Hmm. And the reason it stopped me in my tracks was because you have this blend of race, religion and politics all wrapped together in this one act. So you have this legislative political body, the Virginia Assembly, which, by the way, was all uh, Christian men, mm -hmm. making a law about religion. It concerned baptism mm -hmm. that fell along racial lines, indigenous, mixed race and African descent. And what it said was, in contradistinction to common law and every other practice in Europe to that point, Emancipation would not make you equal with other people. I mean, uh, baptism would not make you equal with other people. It would not emancipate you. They had to make a new law that said you would still remain enslaved, but you could still be baptized. Mm -hmm. And that to me said a couple of things, three things. One, race, religion, and politics are all tied together. You can study them separately, but they are mutually constitutive. Two, it said that... There was this dichotomy in certain Christian traditions between body and soul. Hmm. To say that you can be baptized, but you will not be emancipated is to say that you will not be equal. And it is to say that God can have your soul, but we own your body. Hmm. And the third thing it said was, this is in the DNA of what became the United States. This is all the way back in 1667, so it's almost a century before the American Revolution, before the Declaration, before the Constitution, before all of that. There were these ways of structuring society along racial lines that we can never completely separate from the founding of this nation. And going back to what we said before, the root 
determines the fruit. We want to know how we got race-based chattel slavery, Jim Crow segregation, lynching, racialization. All of that goes way, 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 way back to before uh, the formal founding of the United States. Um, so it has to be considered today. Yeah. Man, can I? I'm going to risk just sounding incredibly stupid here. Um, I don't grew, you do that every episode? I, I do. <laughs> I mean, Sometimes I you do. don't really need to preface it at this point, right? <laughs> the episodes, I don't. So I grew up really small town, right? And Southwest Iowa. Um, I had 18 kids in my class, they were all white. Um, we had no African Americans in our town. When I went to the University of Iowa, they accidentally threw me on the athlete's floor and I was five. <laughs> I was like five eight, one fifty, you know. So like for the first time, like I'm I'm literally living, you know, I'm the only I go from being the only um being around no minorities to being like the only white kid on the floor, you know? Uh, and so all my buddies, and I just, I, you're a historian. I am not much of a historian. <laughs> I cannot figure out like who was the first dude that said, okay, we're, we're going to, we're going to make these African-American slaves. Like how, yeah. how was that ever like, like who's, who's why, why, brilliant why, genius why, idea was this? Yeah, yeah. Can we blame like, it all. Like on I, Satan? I, no, I, I just like I really like who thought this was a great idea? Like that <laughs> we're gonna create human beings as consumable products, and yeah. everybody's gonna be freaking cool with it. Like right. that just is shocking. You know, like yeah. who said this is cool? This is good. That's a great way to think about it, actually. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great way to pose the question, which is essentially saying, where did this idea come from and yes. how did it keep going? You right. Know? Um, so one of the things I say in The Color of Compromise is uh, a lot of people say that slavery was America's original sin. And I think it's more accurate to say that slavery was America's original symptom and the original sin is greed. Ah, wow. So where did this all come from? It came from the desire for more money. Hmm. Um, when you think about what was happening uh, around European colonial contact with North America, we're talking 1400s, you have nations in Europe, including Spain and Portugal and France and Britain and uh, the Dutch Empire spreading out across the globe. Why? It wasn't Star Trek, you know, oh, let's, this is curious about different peoples. Let's learn from each other in a spirit of openness and equality. No, 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 no. It was to extract natural resources. Uh, they would go to, you know, the Caribbean islands for sugar. They would go to India for spices, all of those kinds of things. And what happened in North America was very simple. They discovered this land that was teeming with natural resources. I mean, just mm -hmm. it, it, the United States is huge compared to countries mm -hmm. in Europe. Yeah. And this was like a bonanza. And they said, we need people to work the land to extract more of these resources, to ship it back to Europe so everybody can get rich, except, of course, the people laboring. And so what they discovered was um, whether it was first tobacco and eventually cotton, the best way. So it's a capitalist system, right? So in the basic sense, what's the goal of capitalist systems? You want to maximize profit and minimize loss. Mm -hmm. And in any budget, if you've looked at it, if you have a pie graph of your budget, the biggest piece of the pie 
is wages, salaries, and benefits to your workers. Yeah. So you want to cut costs, you cut wages, salaries, and benefits, or better yet, you don't pay your laborers at all. And that's what was happening in race-based chattel slavery was for hundreds of years, uh, the plantation class, the planter class, uh, exploited the labor of black people because indigenous people, they were, going back to the sports analogy, they were, um, they were on their home court. They had home court advantage. You couldn't keep an indigenous person in bondage because they knew the land better than you. It was like, oh, there's that rabbit trail over there. I'm just going to go that way. You don't even see it. That's a really um, good point. I didn't think about <laughs> that. Yeah. Sad peace. I'm out. I'm going back. Yeah. yeah. They, they also had their, their home team with them, their whole squad. So if you took someone from a particular uh, nation, their, their whole crew was coming after them. Like, no, no, no. You're not going to take our boy or, or, our, or our lady, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um. African people were separated by an entire ocean Mm. and language and culture. Nobody was coming to help them and they could, and we stood out. Yeah. This Mm -hmm. beautiful mahogany skin (laughs) kind of stands out in contrast to the Europeans. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was easily identifiable and all of that to say, we misunderstand the nature of racism and all of its, um, all that comes with it, including slavery, if we fail to understand the economic dimensions of it and on a human level, the role that greed played in all of this. That's really well articulated. I, I don't think I think about that, the root cause of it, as much as I ought to or need to. And because we, st- yeah, we still, uh, there's so many exercises of uh, greed gone wrong, even well, still today. Well, that, I was just talking about that in my theology class yesterday. I, I held up my iPhone. I was like, mm. can you imagine if this thing was in the back of an iPhone? It says uh, designed in California. Guess where it's made? Not in California. <laughs> you know, if our iPhones were made in California, uh, half of us wouldn't have iPhones, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and so some of that stuff. Uh, anyway, yeah. I could, that's a different tangent, but uh, I, I love exactly. So it, I like what you said, that slavery was a symptom of, of greed and right. to the point where we had a war over it. Like, yes, it, it, that's how ingrained yeah. it was yeah. in us. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. There's an ideology at play here where where people truly did and still do think that what is considered white is superior. Um, But that sort of followed along and historians debate this. Right. But, you know, in terms of the durability of something like race based chattel slavery and the reason why it took a war to finally abolish it. It wasn't because people were just so strongly believed in white superiority. Yes, that was there. But really, it was an an attempt by, again, I say the planter class because poor white folk didn't have, Mm -hmm. didn't enslave people. They didn't have enough money to. It's not that they wouldn't have. It's just they didn't have enough money to. But it was really this planter class trying to protect their, quote, property. Like, we got to remember, I call it race-based chattel slavery on on purpose. We understand the race-based part. Chattel means property. So what you're doing legally in, in terms of what's written on paper in a law is you are saying human beings, in this case, people of African descent, are literal property on the same level as a horse or a plow or a house. And one of the things that really gets me is 
enslaved people would be passed on from parents to children as an inheritance. Like, like, like the same way people today would pass on a house or some money in a bank account. They passed on people to the next generation to continue their enslavement because we were considered property. So, yeah. <laughs> I want to, Jamar, when, you know, in, in all the big problems of life, I've got a pretty simple solution. Uh, let's look to Jesus, <laughs> see how he lived. I love that our God came down into this world, not just to rescue us from the very, very sin uh, that we're talking about, as, but, but he also is our model and our example, too. And, and so I found that when you look to Jesus, that, that can be incredibly unifying, especially if we have faith. And so when you look to Jesus, like how did Jesus fight against racism? What do you see in his life that are practices that we can have in ours? So just going back to scripture writ large, um, as much as we're now talking about race and racism in certain Christian circles, I'm still far from convinced that most of us know what the Bible really says about <laughs> race. Um, I, you know, the one sermon or even the sermon series is is not sufficient, right? Like it's it's a it's an ongoing thing. And one of the things that I think is important is to realize that um, Jesus is our model and example uh, uh, about how to deal with racism. But the entire Bible deals with it. Now, the Bible won't talk about racism the way we understand it in the modern United States, because the concept of race wasn't there as we understand it. But what the Bible does talk about are how we should relate to people who are different, mm -hmm. yeah, different across language, ethnicity, geography, all of those things. Yeah. Um, so, and that's from the beginning. So, so there's a, there's all biblical theology for this where all the way back in Genesis, where God promises that um, the serpent would bruise uh, the woman, the, the, the seeds heal the the heat the heel, but he would crush the head of the serpent. Is the promise of the yeah. gospel, the proto evangelion, right? Yeah, there is nothing in there that limits it to any particular people group. And then in Genesis twelve, when God calls Abram to um, uh, leave the land of his fathers and go to a place that I will show you, uh, God says to Abram, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, all the families, right? Yeah. And then you can go into passages in uh, Isaiah, where it talks about the nations streaming to the mountain of the Lord, the nations with all their diversity, right? Then you get to the New Testament, and you talk about uh, uh, Jesus and um even before, even at Jesus's birth, there's there's Simeon at the temple who is elated because he's lived long enough to see the birth of the Messiah, and he said, "This is going to be a light to the Gentiles." Mm -hmm. So already cluing us in that Jesus's message of good news wasn't meant just for one people. Um, Anna the prophetess has a similar message, um, and then you see, like in the Book of Acts, uh, where you know the the reversal of 
of the Tower of Babel and people yeah. speaking different languages and coming together in all their diversity. You see the early church filled with people of different ethnicities and nations. And then you see this grand revelation in the book of Revelation of uh, 5, 9 and 7, 9 of uh, people from every tribe and tongue and nation uh, gathered around the throne worshiping Jesus. And then you see Jesus modeling this in his life. He assembles this ragtag group of disciples that have literally no earthly reason to be together and makes them a unit. He um he 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 goes into Samaria and then elevates the Samaritan as the hero of the story and what we call the good Samaritan, right? He's demonstrating in all of his human interaction the breaking of barriers, the the crossing of chasms, the br building of bridges in that and then culminating in when you're in my heaven, when I return, who's going to be there? It's not just going to be white people. <laughs> it's going to be everyone who yeah. uh, believes in and follows Jesus and with, with all of our beautiful diversity. So we're going to have the clothes, the language, the dances, yeah. and thank God, the food. Yeah. We're going to have <laughs> the food from all over the world uh, to enjoy eternally in heaven. I love that. And, and, and that's, you know, the mission of this podcast is that each one of us are created to be a great disciple. And when we all step up, I, I think we can give the world a greater, truer, fresher expression of who Jesus is. But all of it, like if I'm, if I'm right, is, uh, is to give people a glimpse of what heaven will one day look like. And, and the stories are there. The revelation is there. As you said, five, nine, seven, nine, people of every tribe, tongue, language, nation. So, so, Everything we ought to be doing ought to be in that realm of pointing to that moment. And how can we give glimpses of that? And, and the Bible, you're right. It just tells us so many great things about what we can do with people that are different. Uh, we talked a, a, a lot about the problem of racism and, you know, where it stemmed from and how it's kind of traced through history. Uh, we don't want to just leave people with a problem. We gave them an answer, look to Jesus, which is good. But let's let's get a little bit more specific uh, you wrote uh, another book called How to Fight Racism. So that's yes. pretty specific. That, that's going to tell me, <laughs> that book title is going to tell me what to do. Uh, and, and, and it's got three letters. I love acronyms. That's my love language. It is. Right. It really and is. So yeah. it's got three letters, A-R-C. These are three things we can do to fight racism. And, and I believe they're for each and everybody, no matter your age, color, race, anything, right? So walk me through those three words and what that could look like in the life of an everyday <laughs> disciple. Yeah, so it really came up in the context of like how maybe you've experienced this too. When whenever you read a book or hear a talk about like racism or what to do about it, usually we 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 emphasize the the problem. We we emphasize the diagnosis, but the prescription or the solution or what to do about it really gets short shrift. And then even when it is addressed, it's it's like just this scatter of different things. It's, it's really hard, you know, yeah. read this book, go to this protest, uh, you know, donate to this cause. And it's, there's no coherence to it. So I'm like, well, how can, how can, how can we talk about fighting racism in ways that are sticky, that can, that can yeah. stick with people? Um, and, and that's what that acronym is about. So it stands for awareness, 
relationships, commitment. And these are three pillars like the legs of a stool that I think we need to build a solid foundation uh, for racial justice. So it's less about the specific acts and more about these kind of general categories, right? So awareness is everything we do to learn about race and racism and white supremacy. Like it, it, you've got to study this stuff. So that's the the books, the documentaries, listening to this podcast, all of those kinds of things. But you can't just have a big head about this thing. You also have to have a tender heart. Yeah. And so that's where the relationships aspect comes in. Um, in all of this justice work, at the heart is people. And we need to keep that at the center of our focus. And we need to pursue relationships. So for white people, um, historically, white folks have done all this work to build barriers between people. So you're going to have to do as much or more work to break down those barriers and build bridges. So that means putting yourself in the way yeah. of diversity in various ways for black folks and other people of color. That means relationships mean solidarity, linking arms with other people yeah. so that together you can make more progress. And then lastly, the C is for commitment, which doesn't just mean staying the course, right? Being faithful commitment actually means being committed to systemic and institutional change. So we have to work on the policy level. We have to work at the legal level. We have to work at the level that's going to affect whole groups of people and not just individuals. So I think by holding all those together, the arc of racial justice, we can have a, 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 a very healthy approach to racial justice. It's good. Are those the three words that you teach? I, I know in your bio and, and a huge mission is you, you teach others to help them become lifelong advocates for racial justice. Is that, is that what you're teaching there too? That's how we do it. We just keep coming back to uh, growing in those areas. Yeah, we can really be strategic with it. Like one of the things that I say is uh, the difference between a dream and a goal is a plan. Um, so we're, we're all on this sports analogy. Sorry, non-sports yeah. fans. It's just, the, whole, the whole setup lends it to it. Um, so, you know, at the beginning of the season, the coach can say, we're going to win the championship. Okay, yeah. great. That sounds great. What's the plan? Right. Mm. Oh, I, I mean, you know, just really wish it, want it, do it. <laughs> right? um, so that's often our approach with fighting uh, racial justice. One day, MLK's dream is going to come true. All right, cool. How are you going to get there? <laughs> well, good vibes. Good vibes, everybody. Good vibes. Um, so what I say is you can actually use the arc of racial justice to structure literally a strategic plan like you would in any organization. Say, I like shorter increments. So say over the next three months, you say, what am I going to do to build my awareness? So what books am I going to read? What documentaries are I going to watch? What museum am I going to go to? All those things. Relationships. How am I going to intentionally forge diverse relationships with people committed to uh, the cause of racial justice or in ways that are going to expand my understanding of different people. You know, where am I going to shop? Where am I going to uh, send my kids to school? Where am I going to frequent in, in um, ways that put me in the way of diversity? And then on a the commitment aspect, I can't do everything, but there are a few things that I can really put my energy and my resources and my time toward that will pull the lever for more than just, you know, the relief of one person, but can change an institution or an organization or a community at the legal level, at the policy level, even at the family level. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and really map that out, write down your goals, track your progress, partner with other people. And that's how we make progress. It's not just having a dream, but creating a plan to reach our goals. So good. All right. The ball's at the five yard line. Get us into the end zone here. (laughs) We ask every uh, guest this question. This is a podcast to challenge our listeners to be greater disciples. So practically, we've talked about a lot of stuff, framework, but if they could do, if you could challenge our listeners to do one thing this week to grow as a greater disciple of Jesus, what challenge would you throw down for our audience? So I'll give one real practical thing that is actionable, and then I'll give a more sort of motivational one. Right. Um, the very practical thing, as we record this, we are coming up on the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. Um, going back to our conversation about history, a lot of us have this very sort of superficial, impressionistic idea of what happened in the past. Racism, bad. Civil rights movement, good. Progress made, right? Well, let's dig in a little bit. So my one practical is go back and read or listen from top to bottom the I Have a Dream speech. Cool. We know it by that one line. (laughs) Yeah. But there is a lot more to it. And it's very subversive, very confrontational in a good way. And um, that is something that if we revisit it, maybe we'll we'll see it with fresh eyes. If you're familiar with that, go read Letter from Birmingham Jail. These are things you can read in you know an hour or less. So uh, that's one real practical. But what I often say is when it comes to fighting racism, and this is the more motivational part, when it comes to fighting racism, Um, we don't have a how-to problem, we have a want-to problem. So if I ask the both of you, what do we do to fight racism? I give you five minutes, you can collaborate, you can work independently, you can Google, you can come up with a list of what to do. That's not hard, and honestly, it hasn't changed all that much in hundreds of years. So why are we still dealing with it? It's because it's scary. It's because it requires faith. It's because it's uncertain. It's because it's risky and it requires sacrifice. So it's not a how-to problem. It's a want-to problem. And what I say to people to encourage you is that as followers of Jesus, what Jesus does is he always shows up. Mm, Cool. Whenever we step out for the sake of justice, because we're following Jesus, Jesus always shows up. He's right there with us. If you're feeling distant from Jesus, if you're feeling like you haven't, your prayers are hitting the ceiling. One of the things that has always been transformative for me is taking that next step of faith and seeing how even in this risky, uncertain circumstance, Jesus is closer than we ever thought. And it's he's really all we need. So that's my word of encouragement to you yeah. is that when you take that step of faith, you will not be alone. That's beautiful. That's touchdown. And I think we got the two point conversion <laughs> on that. Too. The touchdown was the practical thing. The two point conversion was Jesus. Nice. I like that. That was so good, Jamar. All right, listeners, if you take that challenge on hashtag red letter disciple, we want to ch- we want to support and cheer you on uh, the whole way. Thank you for that just word of grace and gospel at the end, too, that Jesus shows up. And and we're still called though to do the 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 risky. Uh, to not not always be safe and mm. to do the right thing, and, yeah. and we know what the right thing is. So, Jamara, hey, if people want to find out more about you or connect with you, where can they where can they find you these days? 
I've mentioned it a couple of times. My Substack is the best way to keep up with my latest work, and you can become a paid subscriber and support that work at jamartisby.substack.com. That's jamartisby.substack.com. You can follow me on all the socials at jamartisby, and I have not one but two podcasts, <laughs> Pass the Mic, which I co-host with Tyler Burns, Pass the Mic, M-I-C, and Footnotes, uh, my Footnotes podcast I host solo, and we do awesome themed uh, series about racial justice. And if you go to Jamar's website, you can see a gorgeous. Picture. <laughs> okay. Very good. That's I'm great. surprised that doesn't show up more on the internet. <laughs> we're we're going to put all those links in the show note and maybe even the link to Jamar as well. Oh, Look at that dude. He's got the sweater and the tie so on. Cute. What I mean, happened? You're going to let that dude off the hook. So. Yeah. 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 He's not getting in trouble. Very good. Thanks, Jamar, for being with us today. And and God bless your work, bro. And, and uh, thank you for what you're doing in the space and, and for risking. Uh, yeah, man. I, I know that yeah. all of this, uh, no matter what you say and what you do, it, I, there's a price to pay, man. And, and, and you're paying it and you're still moving forward. So thanks for doing that. Yeah. God bless you. Deeply appreciate you both. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, Jamar. Well, as I said, man, that was a fun conversation. We, we took the ball all the way from one end zone and got up all the way into, into the end with Jamar as he was telling us about Jesus and just showing up. And that's what God has done for us. And so thank you, Jamar, for showing up on the Red Letter Disciple. If you want to connect with Jamar, any of his works, his podcasts, his Substack. Uh, that's going to be found at our show notes, redletterpodcast.com. That's also where you're going to find more about those 40-day challenges I was telling you about earlier in the episode, redletterpodcast.com. Next week, we're doing another first here in season five. It's a season of firsts in season five. We've got a four-week mini-series in this season all about how to help disciple Gen Z. A huge passion of mine. We've got to get uh, and reach the next generation for Jesus. And so I'm pumped to kick off the mini-series with Aaron and Hannah Barnett, young leaders who are developing other young leaders. Aaron is the next-gen catalyst for Exponential. And Hannah is the founder and CEO of Generation Distinct. This duo is not only both young leaders, but they've got their pulse on how to raise up the next generation. And so Gen Z, we are turning this thing Gen Z next month. Don't miss it. You're going to love it, Gen Z. But also those of us who are well, maybe a little bit on the older side of Gen Z, you know who you are. We're going to learn some really great things of how we can come alongside this generation show them Jesus. And so it's a really important month coming in Red Letter Disciple. So if you haven't already, why haven't you? Hit the follow, hit the subscribe. I don't care if it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. We love them all or any other podcast platform, but hit that so you can follow along. And again, we'd love a rating and review if you'd spend just a couple of minutes of time. That helps us get this message out. And we really believe that this message of Jesus we're trying to get out Ah, more people need to hear it. So we'll see you back next week at the Red Letter Disciple. A Huda Media Production.